Father, we pray now that through your word, you would cause us to know the Lord Jesus. And we pray that knowing him would prompt us to worship him, that worshiping him would prompt us to be transformed into his image so that we might be those who say, for us to live is Christ, to die is gain. So that we might be those who look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. That we might be those who take up our cross and follow him daily. Make it so, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to the Gospel according to John. And as you turn there, I want to share with you a statistic that my wife forwarded to me. This is from the State of Theology. It's a, I guess it was a survey done by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research. And they found that 43% of U.S. evangelicals, so evangelical Christians, people professing to be evangelical Christians in the United States of America, 43% of them, more than 4 in 10, 43% believe that Jesus was a great teacher but was not God. If you don't believe that Jesus was God, you are not a Christian. If you don't believe that Jesus is God, you can call yourself an evangelical, but you are not one. So we want to get that clear on the table. And this morning, what I want to do is discuss from the Gospel of John what it means for Jesus to be God. But Before I do that, I want to tell you why this is important for us to know. Why is it important for us to know, understand, embrace, believe, live on the reality that Jesus Christ was and is God? Here's why this is important. The, the, The author of this gospel that we're going to be looking into, this man named John, he was something like a sower of seeds. And, and he cast these seeds through the words that he wrote, through the stories that he told. And the way that these seeds work is the same way that uh, Christ spoke of himself. Jesus spoke of himself as a grain of wheat that was going to fall into the ground and die and then bear much fruit. And these seeds in the Gospel of John, they're, they're intended to come into us and then start growing within us and start taking over the way that we think and start making us realize things. So I suspect that as we look at some of these things in the Gospel of John today, there are going to be some moments, I know this is the case for for myself as I've studied this material, there are going to be moments where you might think to yourself, I've read that verse countless times. You might even think to yourself, I have that verse memorized, and it never occurred to me that it had this significance. So... Why is this important for us? Well, the the seeds that I think John is sowing in his gospel indicate that there is this relationship between the way that the Father relates to Jesus and then the way that followers of Jesus are to relate to Jesus and then the way that Jesus lived is the way that Jesus' followers live. So there's this, it's almost like father to son Son to followers, and we could put in here by the Holy Spirit, but we'll talk more about that next week. Um, Father to, to, to son, son to followers, 
And then the way the son lives is the way that the followers will live. Will live. So I just want to give you a couple of indications of this. In John chapter 1, verse 18, John describes Jesus as being, the ESV renders this, at the Father's side. But if you're looking at the ESV like I am, the verse says, no one has ever seen God. And then the ESV says the only God, but really it's the only begotten God, speaking of the only begotten one of the Father, who is at the Father's side. And there's a footnote in the ESV. And down in the lower margin, it says, in the bosom of the Father. So maybe if you're familiar with the King James, you're familiar with that language of Jesus being in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. Well, John is going to use that same language over in John 13, 23, to speak of himself, the beloved disciple, when he reclines, the ESV again says, at Jesus' side, but literally the language is that John, the beloved disciple, is in the bosom of Jesus. So Jesus is in the bosom of the Father, and then the beloved disciple is in the bosom of Jesus. Um, John 12, 24 through 26, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Um, the Lord Jesus says, speaking of his own death, Except a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then the very next verse. So he's just said, essentially, I'm about to go get crucified. And then the very next verse, he applies it to his disciples. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Okay, so Jesus is in the bosom of the, of the Father. The beloved disciple is in the bosom of Jesus. Jesus is going to go die, and his disciples are to go die. Jesus says in John 13, 24, he says, um, sorry, I've got the wrong verse reference. It's not 13, 24. I think it's 13, 14. Yes, that's the one I want. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So the way that I've treated you is the way you're to treat others. John 15, 12, Jesus says to his disciples, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. That you love one another as I have loved you. And then there's this really interesting dynamic at the end of the gospel, where in John 18, 37, Jesus tells Pilate, in John 18, 37, Pilate said to him, so you were a king, Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. He's not really interested in that right now. And then he says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Okay, so Jesus says, I came to bear witness to the truth. And then look at John 19, 35. John says of himself, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is True. So at each one of these points, what Jesus does is what his followers are to do. And so here's, here's my claim this morning. You will only do what Jesus does. You will only bear witness to the truth. You will only love as he loves. You will only wash the feet of other people, which I think just means do the dirty service work. You don't have to literally wash people's feet, but you really want to be somebody who's genuinely servant-hearted. You will only... Uh, be a grain of, the, of wheat that falls into the ground to die, to bear fruit, and you will only reside in the bosom of the Lord Jesus, which is kind of, a, uh, I think, a nice image to think of abiding in Christ. You will only do these things if you understand that he is God. 
And if you come to the place where you are convinced that because he is God, he is worthy of this kind of self-sacrifice. So to, to get at the, the, the way that Jesus is both God and man, I'm going to take my cues from a guy named Fred Sanders. He's, a, he's an evangelical theologian. And he recommends that when we go to understand these big ideas of the Christian faith, one thing that we can do is we can take the confessional statements, the big ideas in the confessional statements, and then we can sort of uh, explain them with biblical content. So uh, what, what you've received as a handout this morning is a front and back page, and on one side you have my color-coded chiastic structure of part two of the Athanasian Creed. You know, we, we normally recite the Athanasian Creed. We're not doing it today, but we'll stick, come back the next few weeks and we'll, we'll hit it one of these weeks. Uh, part two of the, the Athanasian Creed is on uh, the incarnation. So it's a, it's a statement that outlines what Christians believe about the Lord Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you are a visitor, and, and maybe you're thinking to yourself, what, are the, what, is, what actually matters to these people? What do these people believe about the Lord Jesus? This is what we believe. And what I want to try to show is that a statement like this is not an imposition on the text of Scripture. And it's not a distortion of the text of Scripture. Rather, a statement like this functions the way that my eyeglasses function. If I take my eyeglasses off, I can't see... John will see right here on the second row. I can't see his eyeballs. But if I put my eyeglasses on, I can see him. There he is. He's got his eyebrows raised, and I can see that now. <laughs> Hallelujah. So as you read Scripture, if you read Scripture without a statement like this or without, without being informed by something like this, I think you'll hit things and you'll think to yourself, if you think about it, if you reflect on it, how can they say this? This is crazy. How could they, affirm, how could they make these... Isn't this contradictory? If you think about it, you'll recognize these kinds of contradictions. But, or, I mean, I don't think they're contradictions. You see what I'm saying. But if you read it in light of a statement like this, I think you'll think to yourself, oh, wow, it's true. Okay, so what, what I've done is it, I, I've given you this, this chiastic structure, and then on the other side of the document, I have summarized in, in short statements the chiastic structure of it, and what we're going to do is we're going we're to start at the outer edges. A chiasm is that sort of X-shaped thing that you can see there. And the whole point of a chiasm is that the outer edges are going to correspond to one another, and then the second and second to last things are going to correspond to one another, and so forth, down to the central thing, which is often the big idea. So we're going to start on the outer rings and work our way down to the center. And at each one of these, I'm going to tell you what the big idea is. And then I'm going to fill it in with biblical content. So the first thing, the one that's marked A and then A prime, on the summary it says necessary belief. Okay, and, and that's summarizing these two statements that are in red on the other side of the page. The first and last statements read like this. Furthermore, it is necessary to everlasting salvation that one also believe rightly the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so the document is asserting... If you don't believe rightly the incarnation, you won't be saved. And we actually believe that. If you don't believe rightly how it is that Jesus came as God and man, you won't be saved. And then look at the last statement, A prime at the bottom of the page. This is the true Christian faith 
Anyone who does not believe faithfully cannot be saved. Now, I wonder if maybe somebody here is thinking, well, that's audacious. That's awfully presumptuous. And, and I would submit to you that you could think of it another way. You could think of it like this. Wow, this is awfully good of these people to tell me this, that they actually think that if I don't believe what they believe, I won't be saved. And what it does is it puts you in position to consider, are these claims true? Is this right? So this is necessary belief, I think, according to the Bible, according to the Christian faith. Now let's just, let's just think about what the Bible says about these things. And I want to start with the verse that we used for our call to worship this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And, and the reason I want to start here is because I think you'll agree with me. I think you'll agree with me that John, the guy that wrote this, this, this gospel, he believes the Old Testament and he intends to present his message as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So here's what the Old Testament says, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now think about the opening words of John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So you got the Word, and you got God. That's not one. That's two. How does that work? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How do we put those together? Let me, let me try to complicate it a little bit more for you. Uh, J.O. read just a few seconds ago, John 10, verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Well, hang, hang on a minute, Jesus. You and the Father, that's two. How is it that you're one? Let me give you a little bit more. This is from um, Isaiah 42, verse 8, which Joshua read earlier in the service. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. That's what the Lord says of himself. Jesus says, John 17, verse 5. Jesus says, he says, and now, Father, glorify me. Jesus is saying, okay, you, the one who doesn't give your glory to another, glorify me. Glorify me with the glory that I had in, with you before the world existed. And then here's another statement from John 17. John 17, 22. Jesus says, the glory that you have given me. Wait a minute. I thought you didn't give your glory to another. Well, he, he does. He gives it to Jesus. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Jesus gives it to his disciples. This is another one of those, those relationships, father to son and then son to follow, followers. I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. So this is necessary belief. And, and hear, hear what Jesus is claiming. Jesus is claiming that he is the God of the Old Testament. That's what he's claiming. The God of the Old Testament, when, when he appeared to Moses at Mount Sinai, back in Exodus chapter 3, Mount Horeb, the burning bush happens, and the Lord says to Moses, go and lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses says, if I go to them, they're going to say to me, what is his name? 
And the Lord says, I am who I am. That's what he says. And, and Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 24, Jesus says these words, I told you that you would die in your sins. He's speaking to people who are opposed to, them, to, to him. And he's telling them, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, the contemporary English version translates it that way without the he on the end. In my copy of the ESV, I've sort of scratched out the he because it's, it's just I am. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Jesus is saying, the guy who said, I am who I am in Exodus 3.14, that guy is me. And yet he's also distinguishing himself from the Father all through the gospel. So what we see in the gospel of John, and there's a lot more like this, really drives us to, set, to, to one of two conclusions. We come either to the conclusion, okay, John is just contradicting himself all over the place. Because he keeps talking about this one God, but then he keeps talking about these two people. That's one conclusion. Another conclusion would be to say, well, this writer of this gospel, he seems like a coherent thinker. He seems like someone who's even a subtle and profound thinker. He seems like someone with an intelligence that is sophisticated enough to recognize if he has manifestly contradicted himself. And he seems to be affirming what the Old Testament teaches. And this is driving me to the conclusion that there must be some way to reconcile these ideas. And, and what I want to propose to you is that the early Christians, they came up with statements like this because the Bible itself was putting pressure on them and forcing them to get to the biblical author's own understanding of the relationship between the Father and the Son. And, and, and they concluded in light of statements like John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. They concluded that if you don't believe about Jesus, what the Bible says about Jesus, you can't be saved. And, and that's not me saying that. That's the Bible saying this. Okay, so this is necessary belief. And I want to give you an application point for each of these as, as we go through. Here's my application point for the idea that this is necessary belief. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. How do we respond to that? Believe it. Believe it. This guy, Jesus, he says in this same chapter, he says down in John 8, verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You can have freedom. You can be freed from your sins, but you're going to have to turn away from those sins and believe what he says. So your application point is repent and believe. Repent of the things that you know are wrong and believe in the Lord Jesus. That's one that's an application for the unbelievers in the room. Here's an application for the believers in the room. Brothers and sisters, what we're looking at here with the Lord Jesus, this is better than the sunset. This is better than the canyon. My application for you is behold the Lord Christ. Okay, letter B and B prime. So the second and second to last statements of the creed. In the summary at the top of the page, it says right faith confessed at the top. Right faith rewarded at the bottom. I want to read you the statements from the Athanasian Creed. In the B line, it's in green on your handout. It says, for the right faith 
is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man. He's God and man. And then the corresponding line in green at the bottom of the page, the B, B prime line, B with the apostrophe by it, and they that have done good shall go into everlasting, into life everlasting, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. And I've actually read Christian theologians, published Christian theologians, who will say, that, in my opinion, they slander this creed. And they'll say things like, oh, here comes the medieval works-based Roman Catholicism. And, and I think that is a, a total misreading of this document. And if, if you read the B line with the B prime line, then I think you understand it rightly. If you understand the structure of it, it's suggesting that to believe and confess the Lord Jesus is to do good and to receive the reward of eternal life. And you know what that's doing? That's just imitating John's own gospel. Look at John chapter 5 with me. We looked at this a couple, on Christmas Day, actually. John 5, look at verse 24. The Lord Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. And before I... Read the next verse. I just want to say here, I know that there are unbelievers in the room this morning. And I know that you've got guilt that you're dealing with. I know that there are things on your conscience. And I just want to challenge you to look at those words and consider what it would be like to know that because you believe Jesus and the one who sent him, you are not going to come into judgment. Look at those words. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You could be set free. You could be liberated from the knowledge that you're going to be judged if you believe in Jesus. And then look down at verse 29 in this same chapter, John 5, 29. Uh, starting in verse 28, Jesus says, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. His, he's speaking of himself, the son of man, and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So you see how doing good leads to resurrection of life, doing evil leads to... And it's really the same terms that we saw in 524. But they have to be read together. You have to read 524 with 529, otherwise you come to wrong conclusions. And, and here's the deal. If you get born again, like if, if, you, if you hear these statements that are being made about Jesus in the Bible, and the Holy Spirit makes you alive, you're going to want to do good. And you will do good, not perfectly, not, uh, you know, pervasively, increasingly, and really and truly, you will. You'll more and more love people. You'll more and more sacrifice yourself on their behalf, more and more. So right faith leads to right action, but it's faith that saves. Uh, notice also in that beeline, the right faith is that we believe and confess and praise the Lord for confessions of faith that we witnessed this morning. And, and those confessions of faith, they happen every time you act like Jesus. If you're a believer, you're confessing the faith every time you imitate the Lord Jesus. Point of application here for you on this idea of confession and rewards, I want to urge you to make the good confession, to live for Christ by imitating him. Live for Christ 
by imitating him. What did he do? He abided in the bosom of his father, so abide in Christ. He, he was a grain of wheat that fell into the ground to die, to bear fruit. Take up your cross and follow him. He washed the feet of his disciples, serve people in ways that, you know, they don't, wanna, they don't want to have to do what you're going to be a servant and do for them. And thereby, you will be loving others as Christ has loved you. And when you have opportunity, you need to speak. You need to bear witness to the truth, just like Jesus said. This is why I came into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Live for Christ by imitating the Lord Jesus. And that brings us to the C and C prime lines, the third, your third subhead. And... Um, I just want to read to you the C line and then the C prime line. So the C line reads like this. God of the substance of the Father. That means he has the same nature, uh, the same essence as the Father. God of the substance of the Father begotten before the worlds. And man of the substance of his mother born in the world. So there's, there's two beginnings, begettings here. Jesus was begotten of the Father in eternity past. And then he was born of his mother, begotten of his mother when he, when he became flesh, when the word became flesh. And then his earthly career is really developed in the C prime line. And, and I'll return to that in just a moment as we, as we work through this with biblical content. So um, let me invite you to look at, at John chapter 1, verse 14 where, again, the word only begotten is used, but in, in the ESV it says on, just only. But John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So if you look at, like, the King James and some other English translations, you'll see this phrase, or this word, only begotten, and you'll find it in John chapter 1, verse 14, the verses are listed here on your handout, John 1.18, John 3.16, and John 3.18. And what this is getting at is that before anything else happened, really in eternity past, which we can't even get our brains around that, it's, it's just beyond our ability to conceive, the Son was begotten of the Father. The Son is like the outshining of the Father's glory, like we saw in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He's the radiance of the, of the glory of the Father. And in, so you've got glory, and then you've got the radiance of the glory. That's what it's like for the Father to beget the Son. And in that text also, it says he's the exact imprint of the Father's character. And again, an imprint is derived from the thing that makes the imprint, and that's the relationship between the Father and the Son. And listen to these words in John chapter 5, verse 26. Jesus says, As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And this means that neither Father nor Son needs anyone to sustain them, to keep them alive. They have life in themselves. They are self-existent. That's what it means for Jesus to be God. And at the same time... This is the third line in your subhead under begotten of the Father and born in the world. Jesus is the son of Mary. John chapter 2 verse 1, he's invited to a wedding and his mother was there. John 7, he's got brothers. John 7 verse 3. So he's an actual human being. 
we'll, we'll think more about this um, momentarily. Um, but let me give you uh, a point of application in response to the, the idea that Jesus is the only begotten God. Look again at John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Let me in- encourage you to worship him. He's worthy of your adoration. And then in response to John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Be loved by God. Be, embrace the love of God to you by receiving the Lord Jesus. Well, we could go through, if you look at the C prime line, we could go through and and see how each one of these happens in the Gospel of John. Who suffered for our salvation. John 19, he's crucified. Descended to the dead at the end of John 19, he's buried. Rose again on the third day from the dead. John 20, he's resurrected. Ascended into heaven. All through the Gospel of John, this is one of those places where the lenses actually help you to see. All through the Gospel of John, Jesus will say things like, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. And, and he'll say, like in John 6, you know, he's having this conversation with these people who are upset with him. They don't like what he's saying. And his response in John 66, verse 62 is, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? You know, you don't like what I'm saying? How are you going to respond when you see me ascending into heaven? So, so I think this is attested in John, even though John doesn't narrate what we read in Acts chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, where he actually does ascend into heaven. He sits on the right hand of the Father, God Almighty. He all through... Uh, John 13 through 17, he's talking about how he's going to the Father. From from whence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. You go look at John 5. Repeatedly, he talks about how he's going to judge. At whose coming all men shall rise again with their bodies and shall give account for their own works. And that brings us uh, to these D lines. uh, Which which in in the summary, it says reasonable soul and human flesh. Let me, let me read you the D and the D prime lines. The D line reads, perfect God and perfect man of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting. D prime. For as the reasonable soul and flesh is one man, so God and man is one Christ. This, this idea of him having a reasonable soul just means that he had a human brain. And this is important because if he doesn't have a human brain, then he can't redeem our human brains. He had to be what we are in order to accomplish our redemption. And what he did not become, he did not redeem. And so this is saying, it's not like he became some third thing. You know, you take a God, or you take God and you take man and you combine them, and you don't really have a God or a man now. You have this third thing that's something different. No, that's not what we believe. We believe that he remained God when he became man. And he was... He was very God and very man, truly, both. So think about the way that in the Gospel of John, Jesus asks real questions. John 11, 34 is the one I want to highlight for you. He arrives on the scene, Lazarus has died, and he says to the people on the scene, where have you laid him? And and he's, he's asking a real question. And then think about the way that Jesus made logical arguments that he expected people to follow. And you can see this in John 3, 4, 5, John 8, really all over the place. He's making real human arguments. He's not just 
announcing divine fiats that people are supposed to embrace. And then, in addition to these evidences that he was reasonable, he also displayed true human emotions. Um, in, in John 2, 17, it, the, his disciples that it was, remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. He was zealous for the temple. John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. He was sorry at the death of Lazarus. John 12, 27, he says, now is my soul troubled. He's God and his soul is troubled. John 13, 21, he speaks of his spirit being troubled. He was weary and sat down by a well in John 4, 6. He was thirsty on the cross. I thirst. He died, John 19, 33. They come to him and he's already dead. And then even after the resurrection, John, 12, uh, John 20, verse 27, he comes to Thomas and he says, put your hand in my hand and in my side. He could be physically touched by other people. John 21, he ate breakfast with his disciples. He's a real human being. Reasonable soul and human flesh. And then here's the, the controversial part or the surprising part, the shocking part. Look at the, the E and E prime statements. Look at the E statement. It says, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead. And, and here we can think of that statement in John chapter 5 when uh, John explains that why the Jews were upset with him in John 5.18. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Okay, so John clearly says Jesus is equal with God. So the, the E line, equal to the Father as touching his Godhead. And then the second line, and inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. And I don't know about you, but that makes me want to squirm a little bit. And, and I'm like, well, wait a minute, Hope, Hope, what do you mean? Inferior to the, how can you say this? Infi what are you talking about? Inferior to the Father. Well, as touching his manhood in his human state. And I don't think the creed would say this without the Bible saying this. Look at John 14, 28. This is one of the most shocking statements in the Bible. It's one of those statements that apart from the creed, you're, you're like pulling your hair out. What am I supposed to do with this? How am I supposed to read this verse out loud and not be a heretic, right? Listen to John 14, verse 28. Jesus says, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. What is he talking about? How can he say this? And, and, and this creed is helping us sort out. He must be speaking with reference to his humanity. In terms of his humanity, when he, when he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, the Father is greater than he is. Inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. That's, what, that's, what, that's how we explain this. He's equal to the Father as touching his Godhead, inferior to the Father as touching his manhood. Let me give you um, points of application, how to respond to both the idea that Jesus has reasonable soul and human flesh, and really the idea that he's equal to the Father according to the Godhead, inferior according to the, the manhood. 
admire Jesus. Nobody, nobody sacrificed more to be a servant than Jesus. And if you try to take up your cross and follow the Lord Jesus, you will not be called to do something more difficult or to to cross a gulf that is wider than what he did. He crossed the greatest gulf. He did the hardest thing. What we have to do in serving one another is easy by comparison. And then uh, I'm I'm actually going to combine the F line and the E prime line because the E prime line in some ways is explaining the F line. The F line at the center of the thing, this is what this whole thing is about. It says who, speaking of Jesus, although he be God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ. God, man, but not two, one Christ. And the way we hold this together is we recognize we got two persons. I'm sorry, we got one person. I mixed that up. We got two natures, divine nature, human nature, one person, the Lord Jesus. And then that is explained in the E prime line. It says, one, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh. And what this means is that when the word became flesh, this is what didn't happen. God wasn't somehow converted or transformed into being a human being. That's not what we think. Not, not by conversion of the God into, into flesh, but by taking of the manhood into God. He, he assumed a real, actual human body and life, a reasonable soul and human flesh. So he stayed God, and then he also became man. The Word became flesh. And then it continues, one altogether not by confusion of substance. So this is what I was saying a moment ago. It's not that the God and the man got mixed up together and formed this new third thing. No. Um, One, not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. Unity of person. One person, two natures, God and man. That's what we believe. So let me just fill this in with some biblical content. John 1.1. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. These are actually on your sheet under, on bullet points under the equal according to Godhead, inferior according to manhood. And uh, John 5.18, he was also saying God was his own Father, making himself equal with God. John 10.30, I and the Father, we are one. And then 14.28, the Father is greater than I. And then under one Christ... I've I've listed for you the statements from the the, um, symbol or the definition of Chalcedon and the Athanasian Creed. No confusion, no mixing up of the divine and human nature, no change, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, no division, not two, but one Christ, no separation, one, by unity of person. And when we look at the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of John, this is what we see. We see someone who is simultaneously conducting himself as a human being and as God. Think of what Thomas says to him. And and think of what Thomas says to him in light of the way that the word Lord in our English translations reflects Yahweh's name. So hero Israel, the, the Lord our God, Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one, which... By the way, John 10, 30, you know, I and the Father, 
are one. I think he's, he's almost like he's giving us more light on John 6, 4. But Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. I think Thomas is saying, this is who you are. You are the one that we confess in Deuteronomy 6, 4. You are Lord. Application. Don't be a heretic. And don't think you have to reinvent the wheel. Other Christians who have gone before us have thought deeply about these things, and they've come up with these statements that, as, as Bobby Jamieson says, these statements don't solve riddles. In other words, it's not like there's a, a detailed, metaphysical, exploratory reflection that, that's really disconnected from the text, and it's, it's really abstract here. That's not what we have. These statements don't solve riddles. They preserve mysteries. These statements are simple and straightforward, and it's almost like they're just, they're just guardrails for us to keep us on the orthodox road. Don't reinvent the wheel. Don't walk in darkness. To refuse to be helped by statements like this, it would be the equivalent of me trying to, trying to see you people without my eyeglasses on. You, you'll be trying to read the Bible, and it won't make there. If you think about its statements, you won't be able to make sense of them because they're speaking on these different levels. And then also, I would urge you to use a statement like the Athanasian Creed to help you to know Christ, to help you to see Him. You know, sometimes it takes somebody. Somebody else, when we see something really beautiful, and in, in the ordinary course of our lives, we're just living along, not even, not even recognizing it, not even aware of it. And it takes somebody saying something like, that's beautiful, for it to strike us and us realize, wow, that really is. Christ is glorious. He is beautiful. Know him. Behold him, be transformed into his image, and abide in him. Be a grain of wheat. Wash the feet of others. Love as you have been loved. Bear witness to the truth. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for your help. Lord, help us to think thoughts worthy of you. Help us to live lives worthy of the gospel. Lord, help us to obey the Apostle Paul who called us to look not only to our own interests but also to the interests of others, to have this mind in ourselves which is ours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes through what the Lord Jesus did. Lord, make us people who know that this is the way that our God has loved us. By sending his only begotten son. Help us to think the deep thoughts of the faith and cause those to provoke us to worship and cause that worship to be translated into Christ-likeness. Lord, make it inexorable, make it inevitable in us by the power of your word, activated by your spirit, we ask for the glory of
of the Lord Jesus forever. Amen.